The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I am your host, Rob, and today we are doing an on-the-spotlight segment and would like to welcome Dr. Michael Weinberg to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're, we appreciate you being here too, Dr. Weinberg. Tell us a little bit about uh, your role with CPR and uh, what are you doing these days? Well, I've recently retired, and I know it seems kind of strange that I'm working and just using the word retirement at this, in the same sentence, but it's kind of a retirement from administrative responsibilities, supervising a large group of people and so forth, to doing something that I really enjoy doing, which is uh, providing clinical supervision and speaking engagements and that kind of stuff. And and CPR offered that to me when I was talking to Mike Boylan, probably now close to a year ago, saying I was going to retire. We began problem solving and and uh, looked for an opportunity to be able to join this organization. And so I retired December 31st, and I believe January 8th, I became a member of CPR. Oh, fantastic. And, and I am enjoying every moment. Oh, excellent. And, and what do you do exactly with CPR? I provide clinical supervision for therapists who are working towards their independent license. Oh. So they're already licensed at the associate level, but they need uh, X number of hours of uh, patient care and supervision, and I'm providing that for a group of them. Oh, very good. Um, and I'm actually doing outpatient therapy myself for the first time in about 20 years and in, in, uh uh, I could use a little supervision myself. Um, I'm independently licensed, but... Uh, well, we also can do consultation. and So we'll have and, to talk afterwards. Okay. <laughs> so um, we were talking a little bit before the, the broadcast here today that uh, you've been in the field for over five decades. Five decades. Wow. 50 years. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about what uh, got you into the field in the first place well, and, and kind of what you've done over the... I was thinking about this actually on the way here. I live in the West Valley, so it's always an hour to get to Tempe. And I actually made the wrong turn. I, Instead of taking the truck route from I-17 to I-10, I took regular I-10 and had got stuck inside the tunnel. And <laughs> Easy to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I was thinking about, you know, how, how did I get into this field? And and I think for me, it started when I was in elementary school. I was a very poor student. Uh, in second grade, I still couldn't read. And I think my parents were embarrassed about that, that, that what's wrong with our son kind of thing. I come from a, a very uh, traditional Jewish home, and, and I was the firstborn and uh, male. And, uh, you know, I got to be a doctor, lawyer, an accountant or something like that. And uh, meanwhile, I am in second grade and I can't read. Uh, there must be something wrong with our, our son. And so they sent me, I don't know if it was in second grade, but I think maybe closer to fourth or fifth grade to a therapist to see what's wrong there. I, I, I wasn't learning. And so here I'm sitting in this office with this man who's asking me to draw pictures. He's got a couch. Uh, he's showing me what 
later I realized was Rorschach, but to me it was a bunch of moths, you know, and butterflies that were all black. And uh, I said, you know, he gets paid to do this. I could do this. <laughs> and he's got a couch. I could take naps if I get tired in the middle of the day. This is a great job. <laughs> what a gig. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's where I began uh, thinking uh, in this field. And as I matured, I went on to, uh, to Temple University and I got my um, uh, baccalaureate in uh, social work. And there was an experience I had then that pushed me even further into the field. It was during my uh, field placement. I was uh, uh, assigned to work at the YMHA in Philadelphia. And for those who don't know, uh, it's you know YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. This is YMHA, Young Men's Hebrew Association. And it's just like the YMCA. It's a... Uh, a community center, athletic programs, daycare, social groups, uh, all kinds of things happening at the center. And I was doing my senior field placement in social work there. And one, and, and most of my job there was to look after kids after school. I had an after school program. So that, that was most of what I was doing. And the director came up to me and he asked me if I'd like to participate in doing a group of adults and a therapy group, a support group. And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I later found out that uh, it was a Holocaust survivor's support group, which was way over my head of competency. And fortunately, the therapist was very experienced in there. And so I remember that first day when I met the therapist, I let him know that I know whatever there is to know, I know less than that. And... Uh, he looked at me and he said, I expect you would know nothing. Uh, is there anything you do know? And I said, well, I have a recovery background. So I know how to set chairs in a circle and make coffee. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. <laughs> and so he said, well, that's a good thing because we put our chairs in a circle and we make two pots of coffee. So that's what I did. Uh, a few other things, but that was primarily my role. And one day I was um, putting everything together, the chairs and making the coffee, and a gentleman came into the group for the first time about 35, 40 minutes before group. And I welcomed him in, and he sat down, and, and he began telling me his story. And I stopped him, and I said, group's going to happen in about half an hour, so you ought to save that till the rest of the group gets here. And he looked at me, and he wasn't sarcastic or anything. He's very seriously. He said, well, what if I'm not alive by then? Hmm. You know, and I think back with Holocaust and being in the camps, you don't know what's going to happen in 30 minutes. Yeah. And then he said, who will tell my story? Hmm. And I said, well, I'm sure as, as deep as that story and meaningful it is, you'll find lots of folks that have similar stories in this group. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's not the story I want to tell. I want to tell what I did since the camps, hmm. the purpose that I found. And that notion of what is your purpose, I think drove me further into the field of mental health, that I knew I was on the right track. Mm -hmm. 
Coincidentally, it wasn't too long after that that I went to uh, New York and saw the Broadway show Man of La Mancha. And uh, there's a line in Man of La Mancha where Cervantes is out of the role of Don Quixote. He is back being the tax collector. And he's talking to his fellow prisoners in the, in the cell that they're in about he understands the meaning of courage. And he says, I, this is almost a quote, I held dying men in my arms in the battlefields of North Africa. And they all ask the same question, why? Not why am I dying, but why did I live? And I remembered that line and connected it to the gentleman who came in to tell the story about life, not death, and what's my purpose. And, and those two events said to me, this is my mission. And from there, I've been in the mental health field for now five decades. Yeah, powerful reasons, powerful experiences to, to have. And what have you done over, uh, you know, since then? You went on to graduate school? Well, yeah, I went on. I got my master's in family and child development from Kansas State University. I wanted to go to school in the Midwest because in the Midwest, people have homes that have windows on all sides of their house. In Philadelphia, I grew up in a row home. We had windows in the front and windows in the back, and that's it. Right. <laughs> and so to have windows all around. And the other thing I wanted to go to the Midwest for was um, I realized that there were stars at night. And uh, in Philadelphia, as an inner city kid, um, I saw the moon <laughs> you right. know, and the sun, and that was about it. <laughs> but when I, I, I had done some time, I, I didn't... Uh, I went to school in Iowa, part of my undergraduate, and that's where I, I saw a sky that I couldn't believe exists. And so I knew when it was time for graduate school, I wanted to go back to the Midwest, and so I went to Kansas. And I got my master's in family and child, uh, child development there, and then went on for my doctorate in adult education, um, majoring in adult counseling. So I kind of hit everything, like a social work degree, uh, family and children, in the master's program, and then emphasized on adult counseling and adult education, because I really believe most of counseling for adults is psychoeducational. And so I wanted and got my doctorate. And during that period of time, I ran a group home for boys for eight years. And then I got into the inpatient hospital business, uh, working for a charter hospital corporation for three years and three years for an HCA hospital that took me to Denver. And so uh, I took a position in, uh, in uh, Littleton, which is a suburb of Denver, mm -hmm. at uh, Columbine Psychiatric Center. And uh, that's probably where I began changing my focus to working primarily with uh, severely su uh, depressed patients with uh, suicidality. And we were talking a little bit beforehand, and you, you mentioned that that's uh, been a specialty focus for you. Yes. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. And well, I, I was in, uh, in Littleton at, at uh, Columbine, and I was uh, head of adult psychiatric services at that hospital and uh, the admission department. And 
across the highway, there was a retail store, or is a retail store, and they had someone uh, take their life by suicide uh, in the store. It was a, a salesman. He wasn't, they weren't carrying his line of products. Uh, there were gloves, and he was trying to plead with them to carry the line. And at some point uh, in the conversation, things got, uh, I guess, pretty rough. And he put his hand in his briefcase, and they were in the uh, snack bar area. Mm. And uh, he pulled a forty-five out of his briefcase and stuck it under his chin. A little girl was sitting next to him with her mom. She was around seven at the time and said, is that a real gun? And he looked at her and smiled and pulled the trigger. Mm -hmm. So what happened after that is, I, I don't know if they were confused with the word hospital on our building, but we wound up getting called. And we were a psych hospital. And mm -hmm. so I'm not sure to this day if they understood that. But So I went over and they still had the area roped off when I got there. The body was just being removed. There was... Um, brain matter on the wall behind where he sat. Mm. They had their maintenance crew cleaning that up, which were two high school seniors. Uh, the little girl was totally out, and the mother was just just really in another on another planet. Mm. In shock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and at where the information booth was, a woman who worked there... Uh, witnessed all this and six months earlier her husband had taken his life by a gun but she never saw that nor did she see the body but by the time she got home that was removed and now 30 40 feet in front of her she is seeing it enacted and she goes into a traumatic uh, not a post-traumatic but presently traumatic state and she's on the floor in a fetal position moaning this is what I walked into. Mm. And I wound up spending seven days there providing counseling to the people who worked there uh, and to that little girl and her mom. And, and I think that's when I realized suicide's not a lonely event. It impacts lots of people. And a as we're speaking now, this will be about an hour uh, five people in the United States will have taken their lives by suicide. And of those five people, how many other people are now survivors of that who have been impacted? Um, we therapists are impacted when it's our patients, our clients, uh, friends, neighbors, family members. Uh, I believe that we humans are wired to deal with death but mostly as our peers, as we get older, or when we see our parents get older and die, as painful as those deaths may be, we're, our brain makes sense of it. I don't believe that there is a connection in our brain when we have to bury our children. It, it's like our brain would say, error. And that became, I think, the most impactful part that these folks are somebody's kids. <laughs> and so anyway, so that pushed me into, 
I now know who I need to go into battle with. This is not, this is within that mission. This is my focal point. I am going to fight this. And, you know, I, I think it was Moses Maimonides made this statement somewhat famous save the life of one, you save the world. Mm. And uh, that has been a guiding light for me of one life at a time. And how can I impact this person in such a way that at this given moment, they'll postpone that decision? They may still do it, but not at this given moment. And as you journey down this path, Dr. Weinberg, what have you learned about suicidality and are there any sort of uh, commonalities that you've learned over the years with people that have taken their lives? Sure. Um, Well, it's a dumb thing to do (laughs) Um, because about 10 minutes after you think you want to do it, um, you may not be thinking it as seriously, Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be just 10, 15 minute difference. What I've learned is that, that people aren't terribly honest all the time. What I've learned is that we as therapists, as counselors, educators, ministers, we need to be able to be real upfront with people and not be afraid to use the word suicide or taking your life. There are risk and protective factors that we can learn about that will help us determine the level of acuity. But we need to learn how to ask those questions. Every hospital in the country has a form that you fill out when you become a patient that asks for your religious affiliation. Some of us leave it blank, some of us fill it in. As a therapist, when I am assessing someone who I believe is at risk for suicide, I'm going to ask them about that religious belief and what does their religion say about suicide and do they buy into that? Or if I'm seeing someone who just recently attempted, I'm going to ask questions about, well, why are you still alive? Was there a rescuer involved? I'm going to want to know how often they think about it. Do they have a plan? How lethal is the plan? Do they feel that they have purpose anymore? Is there meaning to their life? I'm just not going to ask, have you been having suicidal thoughts? Yes or no. And if they say yes, well, then I have a few more questions to ask. If they say no, I move on to, well, are you having homicidal thoughts? Hmm. They say no to that. I then move on to, okay, do you brush your teeth three times a day? Hmm. You know, and we're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's... That's not what needs to be done. We need to be able, and I, I wrote a document about this. It's called Peeling the Onion. It's getting to that issue that, that really reveals, no, this is just someone who is seriously comp- contemplating ending their life. It's not about wanting pain. It's the opposite. It's wanting to end my pain. And the more familiar they are with painful events, the more... Um, capable they are of acting them out. So to answer your question, understand the risk factors involved, 
understand how to ask the questions that will produce that information so that you as a therapist can make a honest and a thorough decision about level of care. And if someone is saying that they they continue to have suicidal thoughts, what sort of course do you take with them to address those and make sure that uh, you know that they're safe and that they you know how do you address it after that point where they sure. say yes? I think in the very immediate, you have to look at the environment. Is this somebody who I can send home that they have a support system? How active is the support system in their life? Uh, are they seeing a therapist? Are they seeing a doctor? I mean, you have to pull all of that into the formula uh, versus my home is a park bench at 59th and Thunderbird, yeah. you know? Um, so you pull all that together, you get some cooperating information because sometimes, believe it or not, patients aren't always terribly honest. And then you have to make a decision. And it's not about... I'm going to put you in a hospital for the next 30 days. But maybe just three or four days is long enough to get you over that hump. You know, Or we've got a really good support system. We just need to bring them in and, and help you get past that. It's not about you need to stop thinking about ending your life. You need to think about why you want to be alive. And, and we know it's a learned behavior. So, you know, if you learn to do it, you can learn not to do it. You have to look at it from different perspectives. Uh, one is how do I help this person be as psychologically healthy as possible? Two is given that things happen, when they happen, what tool set do they have to manage that? So it's not just giving them the tools because then you're always in a fix-it mode. You want to be at a place where they're psychologically now so much stronger, these events are not going to trigger them. So how are they meeting their need for psychological uh, health? How are they meeting their self-worth needs, their esteem needs, their boundaries in life? Do they have healthy boundaries? What are they doing to be in balance in life? You know. And so if I can help them gain more of that strength, then the tool piece becomes pretty simple to do. And, uh, and again, it, it's, it's a learned thing, and, and it impacts people around us and the following generation. I had uh, an assessment I did on a, a woman who had attempted suicide and had a, um, a nine-year-old son and we traditionally think if, you're, if you have children, that's a protective factor. But not if you believe you're a burden to those children. Then their thinking may be, the best thing I can do for my children is to end my life. So they don't need to take care of me and live in my misery for the rest of, of my life, for the years ahead. I can end that now. And so I was doing this assessment. and. I asked her if uh, there's any suicide in her family, history of suicide, and that's a traditional question you ask. And, and she said that her aunt had taken her life, and the word she used was committed. We don't, I don't like using that word anymore, but she used that word, committed suicide. Um, 
when she was about five years old. And it was her mother's sister. So I said, well, let's go and talk about that for a little bit. And um, I asked her if she could remember the funeral and the events around the, the death of her aunt. And, and she did. And she described her mom as crying a lot. And uh, that she remembered that the house didn't get clean for several weeks. You know, mom just had no energy and, and so forth. And then I said, okay, I, I'd like to take us into the next holiday. And, and before I did this, I had her close her eyes and do some deep breathing so she can kind of get into the mode. And I said, tell me, what was Christmas like, the first Christmas after your aunt had died? And she began telling a story about how her mom and her aunt would be in the kitchen cooking the family meal together. And this year, it was just her mom. And her mom was making a pie and was kneading the bread, you know, the, the dough, mm -hmm. and was pounding it and doing all the things you do to make it light. And at one point, she said, she took it and threw it across the kitchen mm. and screamed. So we talked a little bit more about that. And she was able to identify the anger that her mom had about this event. And I said, all right, let's jump ahead 10 years. Let's go to Christmas. And we figured out what year it was and how old she would have been and so forth. So she was able to say, yeah, I got it. I know which Christmas we're talking about. And I said, so tell me what's going on in the kitchen with your mom. And she paused for a moment and she said, uh, nothing. Nobody's throwing dough across the hall. Nobody's screaming. No. So I said, what message did that give you? Life goes on. And then I asked her, is that what she's thinking about her son? That if she takes her life, he will mourn, he, he will grieve, but eventually life will go on for him. And she said, yes. So I said, let's go into the future. Your son now is 29. And you died by suicide. And he is going through a very rough time in life. Marriage is falling apart. Maybe he lost his job. He's not doing well. And he visits you at the cemetery. And he talks to you. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is you did not die by suicide. You're still alive. But his life is pretty miserable. And he gets on the phone and he calls you. And he says, Mom, life is pretty miserable for me. Remember when it was this way for you. How did you get through it? And then I looked at her and I said, Which legacy do you want to leave your son? And then I stopped talking. You always stop talking when you hit a dramatic note. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I, I, I guess what I've learned from that is this is a beatable disease. You just need to know how to find it, make sure it's real, and then attack it. And that's what I've devoted my career to. 
One of the things you mentioned a few moments ago, Dr. Weinberg, was about protective factors. And you spoke a bit about supports and engaging them, as well as uh, coping skills, other tools that can be employed. What might be some other protective factors? In our field, we often try to give our clients or patients um, ways of feeling good about themselves. And one of the more common ways that we use or tools is called affirmations. I'm not big on affirmations because I think people who are depressed with IQs over 100 figure out how to belittle the affirmation you just told them to do. And if someone's struggling with uh, an argumentative type of mental illness, they're going to argue with you and argue with themselves. And So I'm not really big on affirmations, but there is one that I really like. And it, it, it goes to the core of who you are. And it goes like this. I am worthy of a good life in spite of my imperfections. And we in this culture, in this society, we, we don't teach that. We teach that the more imperfect you are, the less worth you have. So if you want more worth, you got to get rid of these imperfections. Well, you know, there are things we all want to work on to help us be more productive, help us find more happiness in life, etc. And that's great, but that should not dictate our sense of worth. And so I believe that that is a powerful affirmation. And it says, no matter what, I, I'm still worthy of a good life. And, and my proof, and I, I often share this when I do speaking engagements, is if we all went to a hospital and we were looking at these brand new babies that were just came into the world uh, through the glass windows, and, and here they are a couple hours old, would we agree that they're worthy of a good life? And, and most people would say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, they're precious and they're, they're worthy of, of, a, of a, a good life. Well, some of them have pointy heads and wrinkly skin and uh, noses that are taking up most of their face. And, and then some of them have tubes going in them. They are imperfect, but that doesn't stop us from saying, but they're worthy of a good life. Well, that was me 73 years ago. That was all of us. But somewhere along the line, someone said, oh, that's nonsense. You want a good life? Get all A's in school. You want to have worth? Achieve this. Achieve that. Be the best at this. Be the best at that. And that determines your worth. And um, well, what if we're not the best at that? And what if we're not the fastest? What if we have our share of problems. What does that say about who we are? And so we live that sense of we're defective. We're never going to be good enough. And we and therapists see that all the time in their office. People coming in and saying, I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. Uh, children who are abused and traumatized as, as, as kids, sexually, or physically, emotionally, they walk away from the saying, what's wrong with me? So that's the affirmation that I, I want to implant in people to, to begin to, to own it. Because if I really believe that I am worth a better, I'm, I'm worth happiness, then maybe I'll start doing things that reinforce that happiness. 
So a sense of uh, acceptance of who we are as individuals right. and that we're all imperfect. We're all imperfect, and there are things we need to work on that we want to work on, but that does not dictate your worth. Yep. And we're all worth yeah, it. That's right. The guy who lives in the $3 million home and the person who lives in the $125,000 home, that does not dictate their worth. And so that's a tool that I want to be able to teach our patients uh, and how to achieve that tool, how to remind themselves that they are worthy of this. And sometimes it's just say it three, four times a day and start building that, that kind of muscle memory, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, I mean, that's just a simple tool, but th there are... are as you mentioned, the protective factors are the same as the risk factors, just the opposite end of the continuum. So if I have no purpose in life, that's a risk factor. If I have purpose in life, it's a protective factor. If I have no support system, that's a risk factor. If I have a very active support system, it's a protective factor. You know, And so it's how do I help someone find that piece of moving from I don't have to, I now do have. And that's the therapeutic process. That doesn't happen necessarily in a one-hour crisis assessment. That's where therapy comes involved. Well, I keep going back to the word powerful. I, I wish I had other adjectives, but these stories, and, and I love some of the quotes that, that you've been using, Dr. Weinberg. I, I need to write some of them down myself, uh, especially the last one that oh, you did. Oh, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> the affirmations. There's one, one other thing I wanted to... Uh, kind of end on we were speaking a little earlier about your work in psychological autopsies sure. and I wondered if you could expand a little bit on that like I shared this is my enemy <laughs> you know yeah this is my and then in Man of La Mancha was the the enchanter was Don Quixote's uh, uh, enemy the mirror the knight of the mirrors this is mine uh, <laughs> how can I defeat this this gruesome animal out mm. there and I believe I can and I've seen it happen many many times over my career but we have to learn from it and that's where the psychological autopsy is so powerful that I it, it, it's a, a process where I would then interview the survivors the next of kin so this is when a decedent had, someone has already died mm. um and there's a series of questions, about 100 actually, that I ask each member of the family the same questions. And they give slightly different answers to significantly different answers. I review the medical records, possibly interview some of the providers, and review the police reports and so forth, and then draw a conclusion of why I think, based upon this psychological autopsy. This person did what they did, and they did it when they did it. And I present that to the family. I can present that to an insurance company, um, mainly to the families that are looking for why, mm. and to help bring some closure to them. Often there's a lot of guilt, a lot of should-haves. Should've done this, should've seen this, should've. And uh, those wounds are deep. When you're 
dealing with parents who have lost a, a son or daughter in their 20s to suicide. It's not always a healable wound. It changes, but it doesn't always go away. And if I could help in some small way by showing them this was a decision that this individual made, a bad decision, but they didn't cause it. And have data, not just, you know, I'm coming across as a nice guy, but I'm able to show them based upon the research that I did. And then you take that data and you share it with your peers. Now we are, you know, through journal articles and conferences, we're now learning from each other more and more about my enemy. Thank you so much, Dr. Weinberg, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc., The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support. 